Welcome back to the Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. Here's a hint of what's ahead. The summit is uh, 8.6, kind of starting off at 7.4. That's a 1,200-metre summit day, which is at least sort of 300 metres more than what you'd have on Everest and almost double what you have on K2. Like half the people never even heard of Kansanjunga. That makes it, nowadays, that makes it even more special. The fact that like no one knows where it is or what it is, um, that's more important in many ways. Rabathlete John Gupta is on a quest to become an IFNJ mountain guide and based in North Wales. But John has spent weeks of his life, months even, on Himalayan giants. In his own words, the simplicity and purity of high altitude life became my norm. His grandfather was from Shimla in the Himalayas, so perhaps this was all simply destiny. This is a rich conversation. John is able to transport us to the slopes of Kanchenjunga. What it takes, the meticulous planning, the physical and mental strain, the tears of joy on the summit day, the moment you realise your team will make it to the top. So what kit is needed for an expedition like this? And what's the secret of getting people to bond? How integral are Sherpas to a team's success? And how much does it cost to join a trip like this? I mean, are we talking remortgaging the house? And what does he think to the enormous queues on Mount Everest? And does he think he will ever return there? John, where are you based and, and how do you earn a crust? <laughs> I'm based up in North Wales uh, in a little village called Bryn Reval, uh, just outside Llanberis, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful place to live. And I own a crust, um, sort of splitting my time between working as a mountaineering and climbing instructor sort of here in the national park, uh, doing lots of climbing and mountaineering work. And the other half of my time, I'm often found um, organising and, and guiding big expeditions to high altitude, sort of predominantly towards the Himalayas, but also in a number of other locations as well. Fantastic. And look, you know, I've, I've sussed you out and I know you've done like so much in the Himalayas and, and, and we could be here for literally weeks talking about all the expeditions you've done on, on the big 8,000ers and some of the other iconic peaks, as well as all the other things you've done around the globe but I'd, if it's all right with you I'd like to focus on Kanchenjunga because that's an area it's kind of from a selfish point of view I've never been there it's obviously such uh, an iconic mountain tell us a little bit about Kanchenjunga the mountain where it is is it I know it's not the, obviously the highest mountain but it's, it's pretty up there isn't it yeah um Kanchenjunga is an amazing peak right up in the northeast of Nepal um on the border with India so it holds uh, a lot of, um, uh, what's the word? It's, it's very special and spiritual to India, perhaps even more so than the Nepalese. Um, and, you know, from from a sort of British mountaineering perspective, it's also really interesting. The first ascent uh, was done by uh, Brits, um, as we well know, back in 55, uh, which is pretty cool. And since then, it hasn't really seen much much sort of um, traffic you know there's usually an expedition each year but compared to some of the other big mountains that we're familiar with like the Everest and the K2s and that sort of thing Kansanjunga sits in third is the third highest mountain in the world um, but I think up to this year had well, roughly speaking about 400 ascents in history which is quite a small amount compared to those peaks. So Everest how many ascents has Everest had? <clears throat> I think we're now close to about 5,000 individual 
ascents and obviously people have multiple ascents so i think there's there's nearly eight or nine thousand summits now wow and uh, can't so- you is it is it because it's is it hard or is it because like if you're down the pub people haven't heard of it when you're sort of boasting about you what what is it remote what, what is it about Kanchenjunga that's I think a bit of all of those things so a lot of the huge increase in numbers on Everest is because it is the highest mountain in the world and there's a vast amount of people that want to do that um, and I think sort of slipping into third place it has kind of been forgotten a little bit um, and that actually makes for just a, an amazing opportunity and an adventure for those that are perhaps less um, worried about the boasting tactics, it, you know, in, a, in the pub with your mates. I mean, to be honest, it's still quite cool, I think, you know, the third highest mountain in the world. Absolutely. It's amazing. You talked about the history and, of course, George Band and Joe Brown were the lucky ones that made the summit. Obviously, Joe no longer with us, but was living just down the road in Clamberis. And Absolutely. It's quite a technical peak. I don't. Were you following the same route? Was that your plan to follow their route or a different route? Yeah, we did. Um, we did the same same route up. And initially, during my research, I wanted to do the same route, and then I was a bit um, sort of confused because there isn't a lot of information online sort of about it uh, and about the sort of the the routes that people take these days and I had to dig a bit deeper until I realized that actually you know give or take um, glaciers moving and that sort of thing we we roughly speaking took the same journey up which was really lovely Um, and you know the team that I had were all Brits I'm just thinking on the spot yeah they're all Brits so um whilst that doesn't really mean anything we didn't like make a thing out of that I think deep down they quite like the fact that the first ascent was British and actually I can't remember exactly but I think we were something like the 14th 15th 16th 18th 19th Brits to to sort of add our names to the list so for them and for myself that was quite special too brilliant and I I I seem to remember that isn't there like the highest hand jamming move in the world on Kanchenjunga? <laughs> well, actually, um, what's really funny is um, so Joe Brown and George Band, when they did it just below the summit, you sort of for about the last hour, you come off sort of steep snow and ice and you come on to sort of broken, rocky terrain. Um, and the summit's actually quite hidden. It's, it's quite difficult to see until you almost get to it. Um, and I think from what I understand is they kind of picked away through this broken terrain and then got kind of stuck on a sort of crest with a large block on it. So being sort of hardcore rock climbers, I think Joe, Joe took it on and just basically, yeah, hand jammed half a dozen metres or through over the top, which, I mean, back in those days and not forgetting the altitude at just under 8.6 would have been in a phenomenal feat. Um, and then, as I understand it, a couple of days later, the second wave of their expedition went through to the summit um, and, you know, a bit of sort of um, on the spot thinking and a bit of intrigue they kind of poke their heads around the corner and realize that you can just walk around the bottom of it and skirt up the side quite easily um, which I'm not sure which I prefer but um, as you can probably guess nowadays we take the line of least resistance that makes the most sense for us. Yeah I guess I, I just imagine Joe Brown there just saw a hand jam and he just couldn't hold himself back really. Yeah yeah, he'd have been straight in there with his hobnail I'm presuming, boots. I'm presuming he didn't have a tab in his mouth like some of those pictures that you see him on the when he was doing his <laughs> first ascents in the 50s. Well, I, sus- I sus- like to think at that point, um, being so, so close to the summit, um, yeah, he probably 
might have had one pre-rolled in his pocket for the summit, but at that point he's probably engrossed in um, yeah trying to tackle this subject in front of him. Yeah, absolutely. What was your plan then, John? So obviously you were trying to bring a group of people together. What what was the sort of yeah? What was the kind of premise? What were you kind of? You know, like um, like yourself. Um, one of the reasons we go into the mountains is to you know, explore and climb something and quite often with friends, you know, maybe just one friend or a couple of friends. And the makeup of those expeditions, there's a lot more unknown. There's a lot more sort of self-sufficiency. And um, in comparison to the, the work that I do a lot of with guiding, naturally between myself and the Sherpas, we remove quite a lot of that. But then, you know, that's the package that we're offering. And what I wanted to create was something somewhere in the middle where I could um, sort of invite some experienced clients and some some friends as well to make up a really lovely sort of uh, low key but friendly team with a lot of experience. Um, and yes, I would kind of organize it and oversee it, but we would very much um be inclusive in decision making as much as was was reasonable and sort of be a collective you know working with the Sherpa team that we had with us and with the the six of us to try and just make the expedition feel much less clienty and a lot less a group of friends going to climb a really big mountain and I think um, we managed that really really well and there was the result as uh, I'm sure you're aware was a super successful trip with all of us um, reaching the summit in really good order as well. And the Sherpa team together in a very much like a harmonious unison. Um, and it really sort of reinstated my faith that it can happen like that. You know, the, my clients can carry their own kit and they can cook their own food and they can melt their own water. And, you know, yes, the Sherpa team were around, but they very much kind of just were part of the team in a sort of supportive role, which and it worked really well. And uh, I think everybody got a lot from it. Fantastic. I'll, I'll come back to some points around that, that sort of almost guiding versus facilitating role. And plus, I'd love to find out a little bit more about the Sherpas because obviously they're, they're very special people. But I wanted you to try and um, help us, people listening, describe what that summit day was like. So what time do you get up? What are you wearing? What's what's going on? Because it's you know not many people have experienced that. So what what height was your last camp, and what time did you get up? And just talk us through that and the emotions and yeah. Um, firstly, as you touched on at the beginning, I've had the pleasure of doing quite a few big mountains now. Uh, I've done twelve eight thousand summits, um, not all different, but uh, twelve different summit days, if you like. Um, and this one is hands down the biggest one I've done B biggest amount of ascent and also the biggest time in duration so right. it's just a really big big day uh, and it didn't catch me off guard because we kind of knew that but I guess I just um, it was just bigger than even I thought it might be so the high camp is 7450-ish 74 um, and from there the slopes kick up so you could probably push it up another sort of 50 meters but that's kind of about it. There's a really nice spot for that high camp. And then from there, uh, we left around 9pm, I think. Um, so the day prior to that was reasonably short, so we could get into the high camp in good time. So I think we were in by midday, 12 o'clock. And then we what had sort that of things. 
I just think that day before you go, what are you doing? Are you sort of trying to rest? You, you, are you able to, have you got an appetite? Can you eat and, or is it more drinking? Yeah, I mean, hopefully if you've invested the appropriate amount of time to acclimatise and, you know, go up, come down, climb high, sleep low, the things like loss of appetite and nausea and headaches that come quickly and readily when you first arrive at high altitude should have settled down subsided and actually the joy of acclimatizing should start coming in which means sure you can't like rush around and, and move too quickly but you can operate reasonably normally and enjoy being in that environment so i mean certainly myself one of the reasons i've pursued a career in high altitude is because i seem to feel very comfortable in this environment so as far as i was aware you know keeping tabs on all the guys in my team everyone was eating and drinking and resting so certainly yeah from camp three to the high camp it was only a short day it was three or four hours and then you know once we're in it's a pretty clear priority it's to rest and and hydrate so hydration is like really really important absolute sort of top of the tree was hydration and as you well know that means melting infinite amounts of snow and ice to create the water um, and then on top of that it's fueling us so trying to get food in if people were hungry and what they could eat and then just preparing for sort of a nine o'clock departure which usually means kind of properly stirring up from your sleeping bag and getting things rolling about an hour and a half before um, yeah, so we were in full down suits at that altitude, um, 8,000 meter boots um, and sort of that sort of attire. So normally I'm wearing sort of like thick parastretch leg leggings underneath and a couple of layers, uh, maybe a thin primal loft as well under my down suit. And then often I leave straight out in sort of big gloves because the temperature tends to get colder a bit later on into the night, you know, into the one o'clock at uh, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. sort of times when you're creeping towards low 8000s um and you're starting to get a bit dehydrated and a bit tired and you know you've been out for four or five hours but yeah we kind of left um you know as as a kind of group but probably within the space of 20 minutes or half an hour sort of once you're out the tent and ready crampons are on harnesses are on and you're kind of ready to go you don't want to be standing around so we'd kind of set off and you know the group completely regrouped after about an hour and a half where we took our first sort of main um, break as a team and as I said we, you're kind of straight out into relatively steep terrain up sort of 40 50 degrees sort of snow and ice uh, a few shorter sections as you come through sort of broken or sort of rolling crevasse bands and that sort of thing um, and you just keep picking your way up and it goes for a long long time so the summit is uh, eight six kind of starting off at seven four that's a 1200 meter summit day which um is at least sort of 300 meters more than what you'd have on everest and uh almost double what you have on k2 um massive isn't it so whereabouts when the sun comes up whereabouts were you uh we were about eight three ish um on a traverse um so they'd kind of fixed up around the edge of the sort of rocky band so they could have good anchors as we were going up and up and up and then had to traverse across the face and go up into another couloir. Um, so we, I remember going across that because I stepped off to, to film a little bit, you know, with the first sort of Alpenglow coming up at the back with sort of, you know, head torches and sort of people tiptoeing across this traverse. It was a really special moment. So that's about eight three. Um, probably what are about... you seeing at that point? I'm just trying to think. You know, on the Vista, what 
what what sort of things might we see if we were up there? Oh, I mean, an infinite sea of um, snowy peaks, which at that time um, are kind of like a dark, bluey, grey hue with a kind of stark contrast of like a ready glow coming up behind. And obviously, if you do a 360 and look the other way, oh, sorry, a 180 and look the other way, the peaks behind or the slopes behind are starting to become more sort of colourful. So the sort of yellows and oranges and deep, deep sort of reddies are sort of starting to come onto those behind you. So in front of you, you've got more silhouettes, you know, the climbers coming towards me with silhouettes with their little head torches on. Um, but yeah, and then first of all, it's just the very tips of the highest peaks where you can see the sun is able to reach those, but hasn't reached you yet. So you're kind of, as you know, sort of looking at that sort of direction of the warmth and the sun and the promise that will bring, but it hasn't quite reached you yet. So you have to keep keep climbing and wait for the sun to come around. And, and get I mean, how it. how cold are we talking? Would you think? Um, Ah, speculatively, probably in around the minus 20s, I think. Um, It wasn't a super cold night, and there also wasn't much wind either, which was a real grace. I was really, um, we we were very blessed with a a really, really good forecast. Um, So there was light winds, yeah, probably around minus 20. And, you know, we were... Yeah, yeah, boiling. But um, we we were using oxygen, um, which is a subject which we can dive into or not, depending on... We won't bother. Okay, totally cool. Um, And, you know, oxygen does um, make uh, make you feel warmer. So uh, that definitely helps with the the cold temperatures. Cool. And at what point did you think we're going to make the summit. Was it around there at that point or was it a bit higher? Because you've still got a long way to go there. I mean, you're talking about, yeah, there's a fair old bit of... Uh... Yeah, I think from about 8.3 to 8.6, um, we're moving at about 100 altitude metres per hour. So that sounds like desperately slow, but that's just kind of the speed it is. Um, so I guess, yeah, from there, we're still looking at three hours and we probably would have been going about would have been seven or eight hours so i think we were close to around 11 and a half hours from the high camp to the summit um yeah i, I mean it's just about making sure you pause occasionally to take on some some sweets and some water and to keep motivated because you you know that everything's okay you're just like checking in is everyone's toes warm enough hands warm enough are we okay and there's no reasons not to be able to carry on and i think um there was one moment where, where we were similar to what we we're talking about before, where you come off the last sort of snowy couloir and transition onto the rocks. There was a definite sort of change in angle and severity. We were very much into sort of front points on rocky uh, climbing, sort of maybe like Scottish two slash three terrain. Um, and once we were through the initial part of that, and I thought I could kind of map out where the route went, because uh, obviously it was my first time up there. I think then I kind of slowly allowed the realisation that we, we were going to make it. And actually, we weren't just going to make it like the whole team was going to make it um, together, which is really special because quite often not the whole team makes it. Plus, they often don't make it all at the same time. So, um, yeah, it was quite overwhelming, actually, um, to play a sort of key part in facilitating that experience um, is is a very, very special thing. And I was at the back at that point. And sort of 
uh, I think I wrote about it in, in one of the pieces of the, the rap put out about just taking a moment for myself um, as the sort of team just kept moving on towards the summit and sort of swapping out my sunglasses for the goggles because it looked like it might be a bit windier on the top and I can also hide my tears behind goggles much better than I can behind sunglasses. So it was definitely quite an emotive um, and special moment when when that penny drops that you are going to make it. I mean, that is the best moment on these mountains. It's not actually reaching the summit. That is cool. But the best moment is easily the moment that you allow yourself to realize that you are going to make your objective, whatever that might be. Well said. Yes, yeah, so a real mixture. Thanks for sharing that, John, of sort of, you, I guess, your personal pride in pulling all this together. And then also you yourself, you know, you're, you're going to get up to another 8,000-meter summit. It sounds ridiculous to say, but some of the 8,000 summits seem to come along reasonably straightforward like quite easily but certainly with if you have the experience and the fitness and i'm thinking kind of towards uh, a manor salu trip that i did a few years ago that kind of just sort of ticked along and was relatively straightforward and quite easy in the grand scheme of 8000 meter peaks but kansan Junga was kind of always that bit harder and bigger days and carrying more and this huge 1200 meter summit day that was kind of looming over us the whole time and you, you know like as other people had summited earlier in the season like whether it's a few days before or a week before and that's hard too because you know your your aim this four five six weeks that you're spending there is obviously to reach the summit and when other people are coming down looking quite battered and bruised maybe little bits of frostbite and sort of looking completely and utterly exhausted from this monumental summit day you can't help but kind of take that on board and be a little bit apprehensive or a little bit um you know worried about what lies ahead so to see that day through without any without any frostbite without any big hiccups and with the team seemingly in, in good order and having a nice time was yeah incredibly special and as we said before i owe well i owe and the team owes a huge amount of gratitude to the sherpa team that were there kind of supporting us in our uh, climb as well yeah well said and the, the sherpa team i mean we can get into some of the, some of the detail there but had they climbed the mountain before or was it new for everyone um, it was new for some of them. So um, amongst the Sherpa team, I had uh, my favourite climbing Sherpa who, I work, who I've worked with for almost the entirety of my Himalayan uh, career, which is he's called Lakpa Wongchu from Pangboche. Um, so he was with us and Pemba, uh, who I've done lots and lots of trips with, and um, Chetan as well, who's uh, another regular who I've done lots with. So I had three um sherpas in the team who i personally knew and obviously explicitly trusted as well and have stood on many summits with before and then we had three others from the same agency who who all know each other obviously um so the six of them were a super tight unit and sort of part of my job is to try and blend the clients if want for a better word um with them and that that happened sort of pretty seamlessly but yeah so three of the sherpas had summited before one of them twice two of them once and then three of them hadn't including lakpa so it does also feel really special for them as well you know i chatted to lakpa quite a lot about it and he obviously chatted to his sherpa friends and gleaned as much information 
from them as he could, just like I did. But I think for him, it was also a really special moment too, because he sort of heads up those guys that work with us. So he and I worked together really closely to make this sort of magic happen for everybody. Thanks. And I mean, you also, I was thinking it must be special for you because you've got, with, with your ancestry, you've got a connection, haven't you, to India. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this this is quite fun and comes up quite a lot when I uh, travel in uh, sort of that part of the world. So my surname's Gupta, um, which is a very sort of common uh, Indian surname, especially from sort of up in the sort of north, northwest in, in the sort of foothills of the Himalaya. So my ancestry goes back to Shimla, which um, you may have been to yourself or uh, um, is a sort of um, well-known place within sort of Indian sort of launching for expeditions um, in India. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a little tenuous by the time it gets to me, but um, it's still quite a nice uh, sort of almost semi-romantic thread. You know, my, my grandfather was Indian and he came over to the UK when he was about three or four. Uh, and was a doctor and married uh, an English nurse and uh, had my father. They lived in London in Putney. Uh, and then my father is half Indian. Um, so it's just um, it's just quite a nice thread. And as I said at the beginning, Kansanjunga holds a really special sacred place um, in India for, for many of the people that live in and around the base of it, as well as um, sort of more religiously as well. So it all kind of just um, came together quite neatly, I thought. Yeah, it's very, very, very special. And um, going back to, to the mountain, of course, the cliche, you're only halfway when you get to the top. And you know, at 8,000 metres, I'm assuming, even with oxygen, it's it can be tricky for people to make keep making good decisions and looking after themselves after such a long day. Yeah, 100%. Um, as I said, I had some very experienced um, members in my team. Uh, you know, one of them has done Everest twice and Lotsey and, you know, climbs AA and, you know, spends his life in the mountains. So he's a really accomplished all-rounder. And, you know, another guy had done Everest, Lotsey, Makalu, Annapurna. You know, there's some big summits in there um, and, you know, lots of others within the team and it was pretty clear that when we got back to the high camp um yeah there was a lot of just like collapsing into the tent with sort of feet sticking out you know and um people sort of passing out just for a short break because they were knackered um and yeah you know one of one things we'd already discussed was we're not staying here for another night it's it's not a good option so that was um the only time during the whole trip, I had to change my leadership style a little bit and be a bit more forceful because um, if I had sort of rolled over and said, yes, yes, no problem, we would have stayed there. Um, and I think that might have caused a few problems. Um, so, you yeah. know, you can't, you can't recover at 7-4 very well at all. And we had some very, very tired bodies who, you know, had given everything for the summit. So, yeah, we, we did stay at high camp for maybe an hour and a half but the key the key things were there to just hydrate and hydrate and hydrate and then <laughs> dig super deep find some inner energy and uh, descend and we actually descended past camp three and down to camp two which was a big ask but by the time we were back down at six four i think it is you know they felt a million dollars better and were sort of very grateful for my slightly forceful short-tempered yeah. um push to get them out of high camp quite difficult that 
I, I would imagine it's quite well. I say would imagine. I've I've had experiences of it myself working on Shisha Pengma, but it, I, I found it difficult trying to find that line between facilitator and, if you like, a guide in the sense that you might be guiding. You know, in the Alps, it, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's a, it's a, it's an unusual relationship, and you sort of fluctuate. But ultimately, you are responsible, so you have to make the big calls. Yeah, very much. And you know, like I said, the makeup of this trip was was hopefully going to be slightly more um, self sufficient than yeah. a, a typical client trip. And I think the way that works so well is by having members in my team who felt like they could do that you know uh, they had enough experience under their belt that if i said right you know today we're going to camp one um you know kind of see their sort of thing they were happy they understood what that meant and what that took but you know naturally we would as a team discuss everything that happened needed to happen for that day to work and you know from a leadership perspective where i am on the mountain is sort of what I worried about. So I'd often just come last, you know, and end up hopefully coming into camp somewhere in the middle so that I'm never far from anybody. And, you know, we had radios and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's a fine balance. And I think it does come hand in hand with perhaps how much experience the members have got who are in that team and how much they look to you for the kind of the simple things or necessarily the more complicated things. So, you know, when it came down to the summit push, and we were looking at the forecasts that I get sort of sent in by a professional from from Holland. Um, I would I put them up on the screen that we had at base camp, talk them through all the graphs and you know what I could see on there, and then sort of through facilitating the conversation, we sort of came up with a plan. But ultimately, they came back and said, "Was well, John? Is this what you think? Is this what you would do?" And then you have to kind of gently let them into the fact that you already kind of know the answer but you're kind of trying to involve them in the decision-making process because it's it's better for everybody that way around. Um, and yeah, we ended up with a sort of very tight team who trusted each other as well as sort of my input in the trip as well. Brilliant. It sounds like the ideal situation. I'm, I, you don't have to go into details, but I, I assume that there have been other experiences on other mountains where you may have, for example, had to turn people around. Is that the case? Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, a and how does, never... how does that play out? You know, because you know it's that thing, isn't it? If somebody's paid, I mean, by the way, what we're talking. If I want to go on one of your trips for this, this <laughs> sort of thing, is a mates race well, or no? What was the? Shall we have a word in the pub later? Yeah, I mean that. That's. Um, I don't know if I can divulge the. Okay, don't. No, no, no. But okay. Um, but don't don't tell us that but i mean let's say a typical person going to everest what's the yeah. medium not with you with anybody what's you know what are they having to pay for a kind of you've obviously got the top end you've probably got the sort of ryanair style budget stuff going on carry your own i don't know I mean, oxygen but what's what's everest a medium fifty thousand dollars yeah I th- would that I get think, me there oh yeah yeah i mean what you've got is like if you if you're super experienced and you just need logistics i think you're going in for about twenty thousand dollars um if you want to join if you've got a reasonable amount of experience but you want like the full guiding experience with a local agency could be hit and miss yeah maybe 35 40,000 and then if you want to buy into like a western company a jagged globe or something like that or a, a company with a good reputation 
you're looking at somewhere between sort of yeah 50 to like 100 i guess which is a huge amount of money and then there's yeah. a few of us i mean i have to take myself out of this i don't think i'll be guiding on everest again in the future for okay. a number of number of reasons but there are a few of us like kenton and myself and one or two others who are offering a sort of a one-to-one style of guiding yeah. on these types of mountains and obviously that is a bit more expensive again yeah okay so it's 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 it's, it's like a it's a yeah it's a, a sort of house in barnsley sort of thing isn't it that's what we're talking it's, really it's yeah. a, a huge amount of money but as i said i mean the permits are eleven thousand, and if you wow. feel like you've yeah if you've done a a good sort of progression over a number of years and you feel like you're happy to carry your stuff do all your own stuff but you just need the permit and base logistics you're probably coming in at under twenty thousand yeah. dollars okay so let's Which, say i've i've decided not to buy my house in south yorkshire and instead i'm, I'm on everest uh, i'm clearly not up to the job i'm struggling and i really want to go to the summit you're the leader i've been there myself how do you manage that situation well hopefully by the time you get to a situation that could materialize where for one reason or another, I might have to step in. Um, I have, or the leader has um, created a, a bond and a relationship between you and the clients, which has enough trust in it and enough respect that if that um, decision ever comes around, it's actually quite an easy decision. Um, and yeah, I have turned people back before and they will perhaps need some justification um, and I can give that to them. And, you know, I've never actually had a proper dispute or someone sort of throw their toys out the pram because hopefully, even if it's just a, a short trip like Kilimanjaro or something like that, um, or just out with friends, you know, that there's enough respect and um, of a relationship there that, of trust that, you know, I'd like to reiterate to them at the beginning that I'm not going to turn them around unless it's absolutely necessary. Like it's in my interest for, for them to summit and obviously for myself to summit and all the rest of it. So it's very rare that you have to turn people around if they're well prepared and um, you've acclimatized well. But on the occasion I have, it's usually come with relief because they almost keep going until someone else tells them to turn around. And um, I've never had that conflict. And I think when I have seen that on the hill, it might be because the leader team or the guide hasn't invested enough time in that individual to grow a healthy relationship and enough respect that they will trust them and kind of do what they say if it's deemed an, a sensible decision. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, John. Yeah. Everest. I mean, you, I know you said you finished with, with this sort of, guiding on the 8,000 meter peaks and I, I know that you're um, you're already you've, you've started this sort of IFMGA British Mountain Guides certification haven't you so yeah which is which is brilliant That's, yeah. and uh, is it is it just an age thing with the 8,000 meter peaks or is it something else is it an experience where you think you know what I've kind of been there I've done it I'm kind of a bit over it um, it's I mean you're away from home a lot um, it's high pressure stuff is it the fact that it's crowded? What is it that's maybe changed your mind or has it lost a bit of the magic? It's a really good question. Um, and I, I did do an interview with the Explorers Web last year about this, where they I didn't strictly say that I was carte blanche giving up guiding 8,000s. What I um, was kind of 
suggesting was that I needed a bit of a hiatus. Um, last year, I had an amazing opportunity with a, an incredible client. And uh, throughout nine months, over three exhibitions, we attempted seven 8,000 meter peaks. Um, and that's enough like for anyone's lifetime, let alone doing them sort of in one year. So I think I was just so deep into that, that I was tired and a bit over it. But um, yeah, I don't envisage going back to Everest Southside. Um, I don't, I, I'm kind of done with that. And Is that just because it's just got, I mean, we've all, you know, most people, the general public have seen the photographs of the queues and hear the stories, the washing machines and TVs at base camp. Is it just a bit too much? Yeah, it, it is a bit too much. You know, um, I have to be careful not to be a hypocrite because... sure. In a very, very small way, I, I am or was part of that problem. But what I've seen in the last, um, I mean, it has always been slowly shifting. So away, shifting away from the sort of big Western companies and more towards the Nepalese local agencies. And, you know, this could go on for hours, but I'll keep it super short. And that's yeah. not a bad thing. That isn't a bad thing if they can deliver like really good quality expeditions um and as you may imagine there, there's a whole uh, mix of um quality coming through that side so um thanks to you know the nims phenomenon that's kind of taken the world by storm and a lot of other things the shift has accelerated super fast and now um you know like 80 90 percent of the mountain is now sort of in the hands of the local agencies and only a very very small proportion is um, it's clients coming through sort of the, the Jagged Globes, the Western companies, the venture consultants, that sort of thing. Um, and all, all I've seen there is that there's more and more and more people coming to the mountain with less and less experience. Um, and the environment is shifting. So um, when you mix all these things up with sort of more people, less experience, um, it just becomes a bit of an environment that uh, I don't know how comfortable I feel being in it anymore. So I hear what you're saying. Creating something like we created on Kansan Junga, it still has the same elements. It's still with Sherpa support and we used oxygen. And those sorts of things I've, I'm happy with. And I don't have a problem with that style of trip. If, that's, if you're honest about it and that's, you know, you're not trying to you know, claim anything weird and all the rest of it. That's just the nature of that trip, and that's fine. But the what we created on Kansan Junga, sort of a small team of experienced people with a nice Sherpa team working in unison, that felt just a bit more what I enjoy about going to these big mountains. Um, and, you know, as you said, no one's, like half the people have never even heard of Kansan Junga. That makes it, nowadays, that makes it even more special. The fact that, like, no one knows where it is or what it is. Um, that's more important in many ways. But yeah, it also is a bit of an age thing. You know, I'm super proud of all the high altitude trips that I've led and organized over the years, um, of which there are quite a few. Um, and, you know, last year I missed like one of my best friend's weddings. Um, it's sort of nigh on impossible to have a serious relationship with anyone. And eventually, you know, I'm like mid thirties now. Eventually, some they're sort of tipping the scales tip a little bit, and you know, seeing my friends, my family, you know, those sorts of things just become more important than going away again. So, the short answer is, I still hope to do some, 
and I may well be back on Shishapangma perhaps in the autumn next year, but hopefully in that similar sort of small style away from the super busy honeypots if possible. And as you said, going through the guide scheme, which is going to be quite all encompassing for the next few years. Yeah, presumably. I mean, you, because you've got so much experience and you, you, you're in a, a nice situation where you can pick and choose a little bit and go to the places you really want to go to, hopefully. Yeah, exactly that. So I've got a, a really lovely sort of client base who, um, for some reason or other, keep coming back. And um, we've built like a really nice relationships over two, four, five, ten years with some of my clients. And um, I can now say to them, well, how about going to climb you know, Mount Kenya via the South Face climbing route? And they're like, well, I've never heard of that. And then, you know, but because it's an objective that I think would marry well with them, they go away and do a bit of research and come back and say, yeah, great. That sounds fantastic. You know, and it's an amazing opportunity for me to perhaps step away from the busier honeypot mountains that I have enjoyed guiding on up to sort of more recently and be able to go, you know, and get a little bit more of why we go climbing in our own time, you know, a bit bit more remote and a bit more sort of back to basics well said yeah and i think in my experience i've i've, I've come across that you know so people come to the alps for example from mont blanc and there's lots of things they've never heard of but you take them to those places and they're just like they love it and um and they realize it's quite special and you're sharing with them your knowledge of these quite sort of idiosyncratic little valleys and you know in the alps and um you know yeah. they end up going back there with their own families places they've Absolutely. never heard of you know and, it, and it's I, broadening their knowledge isn't it i don't have a, a problem with it at all like people need to or people come into the world of mountains in some way or other whether it's a three-peak challenge or climbing snowden or going to do mont blanc but as a as a guide or as an instructor and an expedition leader you can share with them the passion for the outdoors and the mountains and the climbing as a general and sort of maybe tell them some stories or some give them some examples of other incredible things and actually it's as you well know from your guiding in the alps it's pretty quick they might still want to do mont blanc but afterwards they're like i just want a week with you andy and i want to climb stuff and that's the objective is to go and climb cool stuff um for a week in the alps and they're not really too worried on which summit it is or if they even reach a summit it's more about the journey and i think at the beginning, I don't mind how people come into it, but hopefully soon-ish in the journey, they might realise that actually, yeah, reaching a summit is cool or, you know, whatever, but who you're in the mountains with is, and what you do in the mountains is almost as important as reaching a summit or ticking a box. And when we get to that stage, which is what I'm at with a lot of my clients, then I feel super privileged because then we can do all sorts of slightly esoteric and different things away from everybody. Brilliant, John. Final question from me. So you're based in North Wales, surrounded by loads of great places for sort of rock climbing and, you know, scrambling, whatever. What's what's your favourite crag? Do you have a favourite? Are you a sea cliff guy or are you a bit more the mountains? What's what's a perfect day out in North Wales for you on, on a day off? With or without clients, it doesn't really matter. What's your what's your yeah. dream day? Um, well, I, I always ca I came into this whole world of uh, working the outdoors through expeditions. That's kind of what happened first, and then rock climbing actually came second to that. 
and I would say now they're kind of 50 50 like I climb a lot like three four times a week and go on a lot of expeditions but in so the reason I say that is so that I have always enjoyed um sort of tying in to a big climb or a committing climb like I have no problem just going to do the sort of one route for the day but that being big so five pitches six pitches or big big sea cliff so if I had the choice and you wanted to come up to North Wales and it was like oh we could go like single pitch sport cragging maybe in the slate and don't get me wrong I love the slate or we could you know drop into Gogarth or go into the go into Fluith or or whatever uh, and do like a big multi-pitch committing route I'll always take the latter like I love getting deep and committed to something which you know, it's all relative. An 8,000 metre peak is kind of a four week trip. Uh, a summit push is four or five days. A rock climb here in North Wales is three, four, five, maybe seven hours or something. But yeah, I love um, those. So I guess an ideal day actually now would be breakfast at the cabin just across the road because they do a great nice. breakfast. And then maybe drive out to the coast, maybe go on to Gogarth Main Cliff, which just feels as wild as as it can do with you know porpoises dolphins seals down below crashing waves amazing rock sketchy trad um an amazing sense of achievement reasonably committing and then if i had really really could paint the perfect day it'd probably be a, a sunset hike up one of the hills and then a paraglide back down and then go for a pint somewhere wow nice would, like it that would, that would be the day quite an overlap with i don't think he was into paragliding but joe brown He's done a bit on Gogarth, I gather. Oh, he's done a few things, yeah. 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 I mean, we're spoiled here in North Wales. Um, and very much like, you know, today it's drizzling out the window. I can see it now. But uh, I think Hollyhead is mostly dry today. So it's a real treat having Hollyhead and in some ways traumatic as well, because they often, more often than not, they're dry when the mountains are wet. So, um yeah, it's a location we use quite a lot, and I'm very, very fortunate to have it so close by. So you feel like you've it's your home now? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I bit the bullet and uh, bought a house about six years ago. Um, and prior to that, kind of just floated around on couches and rented a room here and there. But I think I'd be pretty happy to say this feels completely like home now. Nice. Great. John, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Um, all Likewise. the best. And ne- next time I'm down in North Wales, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely try and tie on or at least have a, a pint. Yeah. Or both. Either, either or both. Nice one. Thanks very much, Andy. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe 